Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Today is episode number six, and you can find the show notes on flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. My guest this week is a chef, Aaron Ryan, from Common Lot in Milburn, New Jersey. If you have no idea where it is located, it is about an hour west uh, from Manhattan on 78. Chef Aaron is from Down Under, Australia, and was classically trained in Europe, working with Chef Ashley Palmer-Wartz and Pierre Gagnier. I particularly like his Kitchen Pass tasting menu. Hey, hi, Chef, and welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, in fact, we are practically uh, neighbors. I live 15 minutes drive from, from your restaurant. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's, uh, that's nice and close. So tell us about Common Lot in Milburn, New Jersey. Common Lot is a restaurant that's owned by my wife and I. We've been in the industry for over 14 years now. And we wanted to create a restaurant that was sophisticated dining experience in, in a relaxed environment. We very much enjoy kind of a creative food, but we also like it where we don't have to dress up. We also like to kind of share items. So, you know, my wife and I, Nadine, we will go out to restaurants and try a lot of dishes, but share them. So we wanted to create something on those, on that same aspect where we were able to create a restaurant that were, that would help people share on the table and, and get the conversation going and get them to try more little dishes. But we understood that we wanted to also create finer dining. So it was, it was more of a, you know, someone can come here for a birthday dinner, uh, or like a one-off special occasion, or they can come once a week. So we've, we've created common lot in that kind of aspect where people, as many times as they want, or they can come once a year as a, for a birthday and anniversary and still have, get the same service, uh, no matter what. And you are describing the food style at the restaurant as contemporary global. So how would you explain what it exactly means? We don't limit ourselves to one genre, I guess. I wouldn't say fusion. From my experience in, in, in traveling and, and cooking and being a chef, you know, I lived in Australia, I lived in Europe, you know, I've traveled through Asia and now I'm in America. So we take influences from where we've worked or where I've worked. You know, we, we take influences from the people we hire. You know, I have two American Filipino chefs who are, you know, background so they bring influence we don't tend to limit ourselves to a french cuisine or or, or or anything in particular we like to take influences from the entire globe so that's why we kind of did contemporary global and the contemporary side of things is you know, we take some classics and 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 modernize it with different cooking techniques and different elements and flavor profiles but essentially it's it's utilizing different cultures and and backgrounds that we we try to kind of create here the menu so i've read that you travel uh, in a lot of countries like i think india the philippines canada hong kong and so i'm curious what was your most eye-opening food experience and why i think every country has their own culture and history behind their food 
it's hard to say, but I think the, the some of the best food that I've had was traveling through Asia and not in restaurants, more on the street stalls. And that's because the food is fresh. You know, it's made with a lot of love because it is their livelihood, more so than a restaurant. You know, restaurants attract diners, you know, in particular street vendors. You know, they're constantly uh, under, they're under more immense pressure. So they produce quality food. And, and, you know, when we were traveling through Asia, Athena and I, you know, some of the best experiences we were in was in Thailand when we were, you know, on the side of a, side of a, like a 7-Eleven and we're eating at this uh, little kind of food stands and they're rolling pastry uh, to, to, to make, um, dumplings with or, or, you know, fried curry puffs type thing. And then, you know, serve it with a nice green curry. It was some of the best food and so simplistic that it was, you know, some of the best experiences in that kind of sense that I've had. So you're originally from Sydney in Australia. So get me to the story of what compelled you to become a chef. Originally, I actually never was never planning to go in the, in the chefing industry. I ended up kind of falling into it and, and, and create like, and getting a passion for it. I was always planning to go into hotel management, still in the hospitality industry, but more of the hotel side of things. So I, you know, we had to do a course of commercial cookery and I fell in love with the fact that it was, it had this element of learning. You know, every time that we did the, every day that we did the course, there was something new to learn and it was constantly moving and changing and different techniques. And it just, I think it just inspired me a little bit more than hotel side of things. And then I changed kind of courses and went down the commercial cookery. And from then I haven't really looked back, to be honest. So it's not one of those tales where I, you know, my grandmother was a great chef or my mom is a good cook or even though my mom is a good cook, but I never got influences from, from either one of them. And then from Australia, what was the, the next step for you? I think that you, you travel throughout Europe and then you build your culinary expertise there, correct? Correct. I, I spent about seven or so years in Europe, living in, in the UK, Channel Islands, in Austria. You know, I made sure that that was, for me, being Australian, at that particular time in my career, everyone, everyone was going to Europe to work. And the whole, the whole part of being a chef was, was paying your dues in, in Europe, putting in the hours and putting in the discipline. And because it's such a different beast compared to anywhere in the world, it was all about building my career. I, I didn't rush it. I didn't rush my career. I didn't, you know, try to get sous chef as quick as I could. I just went there to learn. And then as I came back to Australia to kind of, you know, progress my career, I was fortunate enough to kind of, obtain positions, you know, like a head chef or sous chef position based on what I've learned and, and the years that I spent learning about you know, cooking. And so who has been your most influential mentors? I have a couple. Ones, you know, that are based in Australia, Derek Baker and Keith Cawthorn. They were chefs that when I applied for their restaurant, it was a very small restaurant. It was the two head chefs and me. So it was very, I got basically one-on-one -on -one training with Michelin star chefs who were who were English but moved out to Australia. They taught me discipline in terms of respect for the produce and respect for the details, even down to cutting cutting the tape. You know, we weren't allowed to rip the tape. We had to cut it with a with scissors and that just and to this day I still remember the reasoning behind it. And it just shows, you know, that you're 
committed to the details. You're committed to being proud of, of a chef. We didn't have the, all the bells and whistles at this restaurant. We weren't pulling, you know, filet. We weren't using foie. We weren't using truffles, but we were using secondary cuts. We were using cuts that people weren't associating as high end and turning them into quality meals that was recognized in Sydney as, as a, as a top restaurant. When I moved to London and worked for the Fat Duck Group under Ashley Palmer Watts, he taught me humility. I think he taught me, you know, how to, how to act with chefs, how to, how to communicate with chefs, how to educate and train. And, 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 you know, his one philosophy that he taught me was that no chefs are the same. So you might be able to train one chef one particular way and, but you can't train that another chef exactly the same way. So you have to adjust. The way that he respected his staff was, was admirable. So I always looked up to, to him in that sense. You know, he, he commanded this respect through through giving respect and communicating, basically. Did you work with uh, Heston Blumenthal at that time? Heston was around when I was at dinner by Heston. He was around, but mainly it was Ashley. You know, we got to meet Heston a few times, and you know, when I was at the when I went up to the Fat Duck, you know, he, I would meet him there and and stuff. But I never really worked under underneath him. Have you worked with uh, Pierre Gagnier as well? Yeah, when I, I worked in London for Pierre Gagne at Sketch and the Lecture Room for the two Michelin star restaurant, that was, that was an experience. That was probably one of the hardest years of my life. Coming from Australia, going straight into, into like a European kind of style kitchen. I was the only real English speaking person in the kitchen. I didn't really know French very well. Actually, I didn't know French at all. And it was a, it was a, it was a French speaking kitchen. You know, they helped a little, but it was a French kitchen and it was, it was eye opening. You know, it was, it was discipline beyond belief. You know, I don't know if you could get away with some of the stuff, you know, that used to happen anymore, but you know, it, it just showed, showed me what European kitchens were, were like. There was, they were ruled with an iron fist and because the pressure of, of retaining Michelin and retaining the reputation is everything. Especially in London and Europe, so the food style was 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 amazing. And to meet to meet Pierre Gagné every, you know, he came every every six weeks and and looked at the menu and developed and and trained the chefs. You know, he worked side by side with me, and it it scared the crap out of me when he worked, when he was coming. I, it uh, yeah, it made me it made me really nervous. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and to this day, every every time I see a footage of him, I just he just reminds me. Exactly of what of 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 where I was that day. He was good, but sometimes not too good. Correct or not that good? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He his presence when he walked in, it was like, wow, this is you know this this is Pierre Gagné. Um, I was like, you know, at the at, at the start, I was like, wow, this. I was starstruck. I was like, oh wow, this is great. And then later down the track, I'm like, oh my god, he's coming. You know, I've got a. You know, it's not like I didn't switch off. It's just there's just just this level of. There's just this sec another gear that you have to hit every time he's there because all the chefs want to produce and, and, and basically not fail in front of him, you know, and I'm not going to lie. I failed in front of him and it was embarrassing. You know, it's just the way it is. You have to learn from your mistakes and, and roll with it. So what's the biggest lesson that you have learned working with him? It was all about, I have to say it was all about the detail. Again, it was, it was the smallest details. Which way my copper pots were lined, you know, the handles had to be the same direction and, and you know, working clean, working tidy. 
and, and you know, and how you can take something so simple as a shrimp or a langoustine and, and create this meal uh, that has three or four different uh, varieties of how to cook a langoustine, you know, and utilizing the entire ingredients to to your benefit. You know, of course, we had all the bells and whistles at this stage. We had the foie, we had the truffles that would roll in. So for me, I was like, I've never seen this amount of truffles before. I've never experienced white truffle. I've never experienced, you know, blending in, blending foie gras into a jus to order. But that was kind of the style that it was. It was, it was opulent. And if there's any of this, let's say, learning that you have uh, done at that time that you are applying in your current restaurant in Common Lot? From the chefs in Europe? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, you know, we, we definitely utilize, you know, utilize some of the training that I've, I've, I've been given, uh, some of the recipes that I was, uh, that I'd learned as being an owner of a chef with my wife. Can't get a lot of the bells and whistles. I can't get, you know, every now and then we can, but, you know, I've learned to, you know, that restaurants are not always successful purely because of using high end ingredients. So you have to kind of just create consistency. And I think the consistency part of things. It was drilled into me in Europe. You know, everything was about consistency and exactly the same. And, and you know, every time that someone eats there, they have the same experience if they come once a year or, or, or 20 times a year. So the consistency part of things in, in Europe was drilled into me. And I think that's what we, we strive for at Common Lot is that every experience is, is of the same quality, be it with the food or the service. You know, we try to avoid lacks in kind of, uh, creativity or, Or, or service or, or the food, you know, we always strive for consistent food. You know, that's why we have recipes. I mean, do you think that uh, sometimes discipline and consistency go against creativity? In a way, yes. I think, I think it's a fine balance between all three. You know, you have to be disciplined to get consistency, but you also have to be creative, which means you have to kind of where the consistency may lack. It's a balance between all three because, you know, when you're trying to be creative, you can't be consistent as much because you're trying to find that balance regarding it. So yeah, I think, I think between all three, it's a fine balance. So can you describe to us your creative process? So I sit down with my, my senior chefs. I sit down with my sous chef, Mike, and my junior sous, Tim, and we go through a process of, of seasons. So we, we know We start with, okay, the, the coming season and, you know, working from in like in end of spring, summer, basically, we'll start thinking about the full menu and we'll write down what proteins we want to use. And then we will write what vegetables we want to use, kind of what flavor profiles that we were, that we're after. And then from there, we will start pulling together from the, from the vegetable side of things and the protein and we'll start pulling together dishes. You know, we, we, we also stick to classics in a sense, classic combinations, but we also, you know, we, we're in constant contact with our suppliers as well as to what's coming into season, you know, especially our fish our suppliers. So we're always in constant kind of text message or, or email correspondence to make sure that what we want is, is available and at a, at a solid price. But it can take, it can take weeks and, you know, just weeks just to get down like what we want to use. So if it's quail or if it's skinny hens or if it's pheasants, venison, game meats and, and whatever. For us, it took three weeks just to get down a rough menu, you know, going back and forth. And then from there, we start to kind of test it. There might be another three weeks 
of kind of testing flavor combinations and dishes and and stuff. So in the end, it could take you know, anywhere from six to eight weeks to, put, uh, to to get the menu changed. So the first step is uh, the the produce. You're talking about you know the the seasonal ingredients. What is the step after? Where is the inspiration come from? We work off a pro- we work off the seasonal produce, and then from there we the next step is basically testing it. You know what kind of cooking methods do we want to use? What kind of textures and flavors do we want to use? So from there we 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 work on on technique. We know that the product itself is in is in its prime condition. How do we elevate that product, whether it be venison? So, you know, we look at different cooking techniques, be it smoking or, or sous vide cooking or braising. So we, we work out then how we want to, the dish to be kind of created. And then everything else needs to kind of help lift that main product or main produce. Do you have some time uh, inspiration that comes outside of, uh, of food? I have a big book collection. So, you know, books are a big kind of part of, of inspiration. You know, most, my, my two senior year chefs are very into kind of history and culture as well. So we, we tend to, you know, base our, uh, inspirations off, of different cultures, you know, be it travel or just kind of knowing about cultures. So yeah, we, there's definitely other influences. Mike, my sous chef does a lot of foraging. He gets inspiration from the land, I guess, walking through forests and, Collecting mushrooms and collecting different wild edibles. So he, he bases some of his dishes off what's in season in terms of foraging. So I, whereas I am more, you know, I like the kind of, kind of things where I look at books, you know, I kind of do a lot of travel. So, you know, I go to different countries with different cultures and, and smells and sounds. So that's where I get my inspiration from and my other chefs get their inspiration from other things. So you have two different types of uh, menus at uh, the restaurant. You have the small plates, you know, menu, and then you have as well the tasting menu that you call the kitchen pass uh, menu. So can you take us through the process of putting together that tasting menu? Because I think, you know, it might be different compared to like a standard menu. So how is it different? So our kitchen pass menu is, uh, is, is designed as a, as a tasting menu. So about eight courses, seven to eight courses seasonally driven as to what's best in the season at that particular time. And then it's all about progression. So we design the menu to be light and inviting, like a little bit interesting, more out there to start with. So smaller bites, uh, you know, either it be a single bite of, of something or a couple of bites of uh, a product. And then we move into heavier courses. So it's basically about four to five small bites. And then we go into two kind of Heavier courses of fish and a meat, and then we go into you know like a palate cleanser and dessert. So it's all designed to kind of have a progression. So it goes from lighter to heavier with the savory courses, and then we have a nice kind of interesting palate cleanser, kind of refresh your palate, get you ready for the dessert, uh, the final course. In terms of like the process, putting it together, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of tasting as in, and it's a lot of kind of figuring out where a dish should lie. So we have an idea of what we want to do in terms of all the dishes. And then it's the hard part is figuring out, okay, progression. Where would the dish lie in the progression of the meal? Is this too light? Is this too heavy? Does this have a stronger flavor? You know, is it, or is it too, you know, too heavy to be so, you know, so close to the start of the meal? So that's how we kind of create tasting menu. 
and you are changing it every six weeks, correct? Correct. Are you to overcome the, the challenge of this high frequency for a tasting menu? It's based on repeat customers. We've worked out through kind of going through our history that people start to kind of come back to the kitchen pass every six weeks to see whether or not, you know, seasons have changed. And by the start, let's say at the early stages of summer, you have different varieties of berries. You have different varieties of, you know, whether it be ramps, like the last season's ramps and this stuff. So the seasons, you can get different ingredients in six weeks, especially in the northeast of America. You know, it's very seasonally driven. So you're able to kind of see different produce within a six week span. You know, by the end of summer, you have a lot more of the tomatoes and, and those kind of ingredients where it's a, definitely more of a late harvest corn, for example. So corn and tomatoes aren't the greatest at the start of, this, of summer, but they're the best at the end of the summer. So within that kind of four to six week period, you're able to change your menu and adjust accordingly. It's difficult in a sense that you know, we have to try and keep people intrigued and, and keep people uh, wanting more and be interested in the kitchen pass. And that's why I think every six weeks for us has been the best, best time frame to change the menu. Or at least adapt a couple of dishes, you know, majority of the dishes. So you have an item on the menu that I think I've been here for ever, which is the uh, the twelve hour braised lamb shoulder, the Sanchoy Bao style. So can you describe that dish and and talk to us a little bit about the creative process behind it? Well, I'm not going to say it's a signature because I always find common lots too young for a signature dish. But it's been on the it's been on the menu from the very beginning. It's been very popular. Uh, it's been one of those dishes that's definitely surprised us. Being Australian, lamb has been always a number one staple in Australia. So it was something that that I thought would be interesting here. And you know, we do it more of an Asian style. Santoy Bao being like an Asian. It's going to sound really bad, but like an Asian taco. Uh, they use lettuce cups. It's generally spicy. They put the, the protein in the lettuce cup and they eat it like that. So with rice, it's designed to be kind of very flavorful and lamb's very strong in flavor anyway. And we paired it with, at the moment, we've paired it with like house-made kimchi and sweet pickles and a soy caramel. It's been a dish that has surprised me since putting it on. I wasn't expecting it to be as popular because I just don't see lamb dishes on, on the menu around around where we are a lot. So what is the uh, the one tool or piece of kitchen equipment that you can't live without? I'm not talking about your knife. Huh? Uh, <laughs> I Look, to be honest, I have to say my backpack machine. So my vacuum pack machine, we use it every day. It's like a workhorse. We use it to create ferments, pickles. We use it to preserve items. We marinate it. We use it for marination. We use it for cooking. It's one of those things that... It's one of those tools in the kitchen that is, you know, when, when it needs to get service, it, it definitely hurts us. You know, that's why I have a, a personal one at home that, you know, in case that if the restaurant one breaks, I can bring in my personal backpack machine. So we're, we're not out. And so we're not basically working without the backpack. It's just a very good tool if you know how to use it well. You know, it's very versatile. So it's not just for, you know, for your fish or for your meat. You can use it for a quick fermentation, you know, or you can use it to kind of infuse ingredients, oils, all this kind of stuff. So it's very, such a versatile equipment. And I don't think it is 
it's just one of those equipments that I just don't think that common law in particular can live without. Would uh, Pierre Gagnier agree with it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't. I remember backpacking a lot with Pierre Gagnier. I remember backpacking a lot. I don't nowadays if he uses it as much. But when I was doing it, when I worked for him about ten years ago or so, we we still backpacked a lot. So yeah, I would say he would still use it. During um, you know our experience at uh, your kitchen pass, I have to say that we were very impressed with the apparent relaxed atmosphere in your restaurant between you and and the member of your team. So I know like communication like in everywhere you know it's key in the kitchen as well. So can you take us through the process that you have taken to create a successful interaction with the member of your staff? I think it starts with the hiring process. To be honest, our team is such a small team. I have final say of who gets hired and who doesn't. But I think from a team perspective, we all have a fine, we all have a say. I, I want my team to be involved in, in like the, you know, in the hiring aspect of, of people because we basically spend, we spend more time with the people in the restaurant than we do with our own families. And I know that's a cliche, but it, it is very true for the, for the industry. So I, I encourage my chefs to have their opinion about, about me hiring someone. And it base, so it gives them a respect that, okay, well, this person will work for us. I don't, I don't like to hire someone who is going to create problems within the kitchen. Everyone has to have the same idea as to, okay, well, this is how the kitchen works. We're all equal. Uh, when it comes down to it, I might be the owner and Mike might be the sous chef. But we're all equals and we're all adults. So I think it also comes down to respect as well. I, my staff give me respect. I give respect back. And I think they, I think they crave that because I treat them like adults. I don't treat them like kids. And, you know, when it comes down to training, it's all about communicating and, and trying to learn and trying to work out how that person is best going to learn. So, you know, I think this is mutual respect between everyone. Because of that, you know, small knit group mentality, you know, that we have to work as a team. So I'm going to employ people that are going to fit the team's mold, fit the team's dynamics. So, you know, if someone's super ego, I'm not going to hire someone like that because everyone's going to butt head with that person. And then the, the relaxed atmosphere in the team and in the, in the actual kitchen would be hindered. So is it something that, uh, you know, you learn from your training in, in Europe and you said hey, one day, um, you know, this is something that I want to apply and this is my philosophy or I'm going to make it my philosophy or this is something that you have decided to have in your restaurant because it could be maybe different from what the experience you lived, you know, when you were training in Europe. I think it's a mixture. You know, there's definitely some kitchens which I didn't agree as to how they ran the kitchen and then there's some aspects of of a kitchen life that I agreed with in some kitchens. So I've taken basically I've taken bits and pieces of of kitchens that I've worked for and I've created my own kind of process. I think that's the only way you can do it because each kitchen is different. You're never going to rep, uh, replicate the exactly the same kitchen anywhere. Even just down to you know the chefs you hire, you're not going to hire this exactly the same people at a different restaurant. Everyone has different personalities, so you have to adjust. So I've taken bits and pieces off different restaurants that I've worked for, which I liked, and I've taken that and I've hopefully created a, a kitchen and a, and a restaurant that 
is both consistent and obviously that produces high quality food. So, you know, within uh, an atmosphere that is that people like to work in. So let's go back to uh, the food a little bit. So what uh, ingredients are irreplaceable, you know, to you and why? I always find this one the hardest because there's so many different ingredients that you could use that I could say, but, you know, either down to stocks and sources. But I think for me, it's, it's micro cilantro or micro coriander. So the baby coriander, basically. I think the style of our restaurant is very, you know, we have a lot of Southeast Asian influence and, and, and this kind of, and this kind of style of food. But also I think even with some of the European kind of style foods, the micro cilantro works. Such a fresh ingredient, such a pop of flavor that you don't need a lot for it to go far. You know, obviously people would say salt and, and pepper and this kind of stuff. And I agree, but I think that one irreplaceable ingredient where it's different from salt and pepper or onions or garlic. I think my, for, for us, it's micro, uh, micro, uh, micro coriander. And do you have uh, unique and uh, let's say surprising ingredients that uh, finding their way in your menu lately? Something like, you know, unfamiliar. We're using a lot of finger limes or, or citrus caviar at the moment. So it's technically, it's native, not native anymore, but native to Australia. It is a, it's like a fruit tree almost. It's basically a little kind of pod of all tiny little spheres of lime or high, you know, highly acidic. And we use it as caviar. So like a, on seafood for that pop of acidic without having to just squeeze lemon on or squeeze lime on. So it's, and it's very hard to see. So you don't actually see it until you eat it. Basically like a burst of, burst of lemon and lime. And what's the name of it again? Finger limes. Finger limes, okay. Yeah. So let's focus on one common ingredient, uh, salmon. What unique and new dish can you prepare at home, you know, for a home cook with uh, salmon? For me, the way that we do, you know, and common lot style, I always like the tartar. I always found salmon tartar to be, you know, if you get a good quality salmon, a simple tartar, is, is stunning. You know, we would do it with, you know, you can either buy ponzu or you can make your own ponzu, but simply dress with some ponzu, grated ginger over the top, fresh chilies, and then serve it with some lettuce leaf, you know, like a bib lettuce or cos lettuce and put it down the middle and eat it like that, you know, and sprinkled with sesame seeds and micro cilantro or micro coriander. To me, that's a, that's a, I just love like that kind of sashimi kind of raw tuna, uh, raw salmon. You know, you get the velvety kind of flavor without, uh, without getting that kind of cooked salmon flavor. And there's a special way for me at home to, uh, you know, to cut the, the salmon to, uh, to have it as a, a tartar way. Depends on the size, but I, you know, I just think, you know, keep it, keep it small, keep the dice, you know, keep the salmon, you know, nicely diced small and, not too small, but, but you want to be able to, you know, eat and taste the actual salmon. I recommend just slicing just straight down and then laying it flat and then kind of just making like a, like small cubes of salmon. That way, when you dress it, it still looks like chunks of salmon, but you're able to eat, you know, eat it. So maybe a centimeter by a centimeter. I don't know what. Yeah. I don't know it either. Don't yeah. ask me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make the, the homemade, the uh, ponzu sauce? Ponzu sauce. We would just do, you know, if you have lemons, limes, any citrus fruits, so lemons, limes, 
oranges. You would take sugar, some soy sauce, some, you know, a vinegar of some description. And then you take a little bit of, you know, if you had it, some bonito, which is like dried fish. And then you just basically incorporate that with a little bit of, a uh, little bit of, of water, I guess, and just make a little dressing with it. You can reduce it or you can just kind of, you know, make sure the sugar is basically dissolved is the best way. You know, it's a very simple dressing. So you just need, it's just high acid kind of dressing for, for mainly for seafood, but also kind of, you know, slightly sweet and smoky from the Benito. So we, we have reached the, um, almost the end of the, of the interview, but I have a, a series of uh, rapid fire questions for you. Okay. So where do you eat where you are off the clock? We tend to go to New York. So we'll go to the East Village. Nowhere in particular, just, we'll just walk around the East Village. But if we had like a go-to restaurant, I would say pig and cow. Okay. So chicken, are you baked or fried? I'm, yeah. Roasted, roast chicken. Roasted. Yeah. And are you tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Can you give me three dishes you could not live without cooking or eating? I do like sushi, a good curry, and then a, a roast dinner, like a roast, roast beef or roast lamb or roast pork. Something like a roasted dinner, mainly done by mum, basically. <laughs> where, where do you go for sushi? We have a place in Madison. It's owned by... A married couple, Eleni and Mr. Otai, right next to the train station. I just find they they use the same suppliers, fish suppliers as us, so I know the quality of the fish that they get in. You know, he prepares it in front of you, and and it's just it's just quality sashimi. So you said that you're collecting a lot of uh, cookbooks. Can you give me two of your favorite? That's really hard. Yeah, I have hundreds of cookbooks. There's Nose to Tail by um, Ferguson. He owns a restaurant in in London, St. John Wood, I think. Uh, he does a lot of nose to tail cooking, but very simple food. So we have, a, it's a, it's called nose to tail. And then the other one is called Chin Chin, which is a modern Asian restaurant in Australia. The recipes are solid, like, and the food I've eaten at the restaurant and it is, it is some of the best, like modern Asian food that I've had. I think from like a, from my kind of taste buds, I, I, lo I love kind of like that Southeast Asian and it kind of nails it. And I think the nose, then the other book, The Nose to Tail, I think, you know, it's that book that when you open your first restaurant and you can't afford the high-end cuts of meat, this gives you an idea of other cuts that you can create dishes into something special. Like you can use secondary cuts that are cheaper, but not many people know about and turn them into Michelin star dishes. The chef's name is Fergus Henderson. What's your go-to meal to cook for someone special? Oh, if I was going to cook for my wife? Yeah. I have to say schnitzel. He's Austrian. Yeah. Or spätzle. So if I was going to do, if I was going to cook for Nadine, my wife, it would be veal schnitzel or cheese, like a kesspätzle. Okay. So thank you very much, Chef, for accepting to be on the show. It was a great experience. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, 
please send this podcast their way as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.